Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hi, I'm Bala Musitz, a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now the recently retired. Yes, I'm retired. But I was the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University. And in a very unretired way, Bela, I'm jealous, uh, coming to you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences, and still, Bela, getting up every morning and going to work. But congratulations. Thank you, Mike. Uh, first, I want to thank everybody for joining us, both uh, returning listeners and new listeners. Uh, we hope that you enjoy listening to our podcast as much as we enjoy creating it. Uh, second, I like to always answer the question which people ask me, Mike, why the heck are you and Bela doing this? Uh, and I always answer it's not to make money, but uh, the two of us really enjoy learning from smart, interesting people. Uh, we like to figure out how the world is changing, uh, how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing, and we lo- love to overlay our observations and compare them with the lessons we've each learned over three-plus decades as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors. To do this, we've put together our network of interesting friends, former students, and business partners, along with other people that we've met more recently, to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. Today's guest on the podcast is Chris Hutchins. He is the co-founder and CEO of Grove. Grove is a company on a mission to make financial planning honest and accessible for everyone. Now, that's a concept. Previously, he was a partner at Google Ventures and a co-founder of Milk, which was a mobile app company that was acquired by Google. Chris began his career as an investment banker at Allen & Company and later as a management consultant at Monitor Group. So let's dive right into the interview I did with Chris. Hello, folks. Bela Musitz here, and welcome to the Unconventional Path podcast. Uh, Today's guest is uh, Chris Hutchins. He is CEO and founder at Grove, real interesting company located out in uh, California, in the Valley, as they say. And uh, so I'm looking forward to having a great conversation with him. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. My pleasure. So uh, here's my first question, Chris. If you and I met each other at a networking event and um, I asked you, what do you do? How would you answer that question? Yeah, so I I might have a controversial answer in which case, like, I feel like at networking events, I'm the person that's always trying to deviate away from work. So I I always ask the what's your story question. So when someone asks me what I do, I say, well, I run a company. I love to travel. Um, You know, my wife and I have a dog and we love to go for hikes. Uh, And then if someone asked a follow up that was specifically, well, what's the company? I'd say, you know, I run a financial planning firm and we help people figure out how to make the best decisions with their money. Ah, great. So tell me a little bit about uh, Grove, uh, the company that you founded. Yeah. So, you know, I'm in my mid 30s. Excuse me. I'm in my mid 30s. And uh, for the last five, 10 years, I've had all my friends know that I'm a crazy nerd when it comes to money and optimization and personal finance. And so um, I've spent so much time digging into those spaces that people bring me all their questions. And so I started Grove as a company that, you know, was like a financial planning firm or a financial advisor, other places, but had a few different core tenants. One was that we're a fiduciary. We always act in our client's best interests, which is unfortunately only true of about one in 10 financial advisors in the U S 
Um, and then the other was that we were going to build software so that the whole experience was better. And ultimately, that actually means our advisors spend less time uh, uh, with some of the software. And so that means we can offer it at a lower cost. So we help people take a look at their goals, the things they care about in life, their financial situation, and figure out how to get on track and optimize everything so that they're maximizing their money in the best way possible. Okay. That's a great, great uh, summary. So uh, explain maybe a few things that maybe uh, some of our listeners don't understand. You said that you guys are a fiduciary. So can you expand on that and what makes you a fiduciary compared to others? Yeah. So in our case, it's choosing to register as a RIA, which is a registered investment advisor versus registering as a broker dealer. As an RIA, we're legally bound to the fiduciary standard, which means, you know, we hold ourselves to the legal obligation that we will always act in our client's best interest. Um, as opposed to as a broker, there's a standard that's called the suitability standard, which means, you know, you have to do something that's generally in the right direction. If someone says, please help me invest in the stock market, you can't help them invest in the bond market, but uh, you can help them invest in the stock market through a fund that is, you know, very, if not virtually identical to a Vanguard fund with a 0.1% fee, you can instead send them to a fund that your your company manages that has a 2% fee, as long as it's in the stock market. So um, we, we choose a different standard, which means if we're recommending something, it actually has to be uh, in the client's best interest. So that seems like a great tip and learning point right here in the first two and a half minutes of the podcast where if we're looking for a financial advisor, make sure they're in that fiduciary category uh, yes. as you guys Num- are. Number one question I tell someone that's looking for a financial advisor, I say, look, you don't have to hire us, but just make sure that you ask that question. And unfortunately, the answer won't usually be yes or no. It'll be yes or some kind of like obfuscating answer like, I want to tell you a story about how much we care about our clients. And so I tell people if the it, it's yes or Whatever else is said means no. Yes, it's a, right. It's a short yes, affirmative, or it's a long roundabout way of saying, I, I don't want to say the no word. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's great. So uh, this is a real crowded space, right? I'm inundated all the time with people who want to help me manage my money or manage my money for me. So in addition to sort of the fiduciary piece of it, how does a new startup sort of you know, establish themselves and and make it a better experience because it seems really crowded. Yeah, so I think a lot of companies, what I noticed, were focused on um, various pieces of the puzzle. So you have companies that will help you pick the life insurance policy, help you pick the investment portfolio, help you pick the, you know, they offer a new savings account. Um, They find a way to scan your transactions or, you know, tell you your credit score. Um, But what I realized was that people didn't know how to put the pieces together. And the way you put them together is different depending on what your priorities in life are. So, you know, if you are single and have no children and no one that depends on you, you might not need life insurance. So if you land on a website that's going to help you buy life insurance, you don't know that maybe you don't need it right now. Um, if you you know, have a lot of credit card debt and you land on a website helping you invest your money, you know, they might not take the time to ask whether you should even be investing. Maybe the better answer is to pay off your credit card debt. So we approach it from a step before, which is really thinking holistically about your plan and what you need to do to be on the right path forward. And so, you know, we don't offer all of those other products and services. And many times we say these are what we think are the best places to go for, um, 
you know, signing up for life insurance or to, to, you know, open up a high yield savings account. And so we sit as the layer before, which I think really helps us differentiate from a lot of the other companies in the space that focus on one particular part of the problem. Right, right. So, uh, in my experience, the way that you, the process for that is usually to, you know, sit down with somebody in their office for an hour or so and sort of get engaged and tell them all about your life, where you're going, blah, blah, blah. And then based on that input, they they make a, a, a recommendation or, you know, engage in some additional questions and conversation. So what's your process like? Yep. So when someone signs up, they first they fill out their profile online, they sync their accounts so we understand their financial background, but then they jump straight into a strategy session with an advisor. And so we have a team of certified financial planners and all of our clients and members have a have a strategy session with them to talk about their goals, what's important to them, um, what their priorities in life are. For some, it might be saving for their kids college. For some, it might be buying a home. For some, it might be retiring early or paying off their student loans. And so depending on your circumstances, circumstances, what you need to do is different. And so we do the same strategy session. We do it all virtually because, you know, the the cost of maintaining physical presence all around the country is really high. And it's not something that, you know, most of the people in our target customer base actually value. And we don't take them out to dinner because that free dinner you're getting taken out to is usually just something that you're paying for in the fees you pay. And so we do everything virtually and online, but we, we still have that human relationship, which we think is really important to understand the differences between every Every one of our clients, which which are all different. Yeah. So how much of what you do is sort of uh, education, meaning education to your clients and, and helping them understand the options and the ramifications thereof? Yeah, I'd say, wow, it's a good question. So, you know, at least uh, 50% is, is helping them understand and then 50% is telling them what to do. So if we understand them and they understand us and they know that we're acting in their best interest, sometimes people just want to be told what to do. Where where do I open the account? And where do I put the money? And some people want to understand the the how and the why behind it and some don't. And so when we deliver advice online, we give you more information than you need to execute on that. And if you want to go read it all uh, and understand all the details behind it, you can. Uh, if you want to ask your advisor questions to get into the weeds, you can. But some people don't want that. And so, you know, we make sure that we give everyone the actionable what you need to do. And, you know, we also give them how and why and let them ask questions, but not everyone chooses to, to go down that path. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how, uh, how long have you guys been around? About three years now. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. And venture backed? Yes. So we've, we've raised about $10 million from venture capitalists. Uh, you know, I was a VC in my prior life. So uh, it's funny, when I started the company, I thought maybe let's not do venture, but it just became clear that the reason why so many people in this country can't get good, honest, affordable financial advice is that the people doing it the right way are using software that is so old and archaic that they just have to spend so much of their time, you know, inputting data manually and copying things over and, and printing things out. And if you can't replace that and make it better, then, you know, the, the end of the day, the customer is going to be the one that pays the difference. Right, right. So help me understand a little bit where your software uh, gives me, the client, an advantage. Yeah. So I'd say the software gives the client the advantage because you sync your accounts. And so your advisor actually knows what's going on in the background. Now, we don't have access to move your money or take your money or do anything like that. But um, it means that every, you know, a traditional advisor would say, hey, can you print out all your bank statements and bring them into the office? And so it just keeps our advisors up to date. Um, 
The other, the other thing, you might not actually see this as a customer, but in a traditional firm, you'd fill out a paper, you'd print out your documents, the advisor would organize them in one piece of software, model them in another, forecast them in another, export them to a binder and print, uh, print out 100 pages, walk you through it, summarize it in another document. And so, you know, you might not see some of the benefits on the back end, but you see those benefits in the cost because our advisors aren't spending, you know, two, three, four, five much five times as much time as they would have had to doing it in a, in a more old fashioned sense. Yeah. So, so your, your advisors get to spend more of their time actually advising and making those decisions and recommendations as opposed to inputting and organizing and doing some of those other uh, less value added pieces. Yeah, which is great because that's what that's what our human advisors are really, really good at. They're yeah. good at understanding customers, figuring out what they need to do. Um, you know, they're also good at, you know, spreadsheets, but, you know, software is really good at that, too. So right. no reason for humans to do something software can do well. But similarly, there's no reason to try to automate things that software can't do well, which is why we still have real human advisors on the team. Yeah. So how do you um, how do you get your customers? Yeah. So, you know, get a lot of people through referrals. We get a lot of people through, um, you know, I, I end up talking a lot about uh, personal finance on the Internet, um, you know, everything from podcasts to writing some articles to blogging to some of the blogging content we have on our website. Um, you know, we've experimented a little bit with, uh, you know, channels like Facebook and Instagram and, and social stuff. And um yeah, for the first two years of the company, we had a, a wait list that you know lasted up to six months long, and we've been growing the team so that we can handle that. So yeah, that's kind of a little bit of the mix. Uh, so um, I, what I hear what I hear you saying is that you've been kind of throttled back a little bit to some extent, and and not taking on too many customers to to sort of overwhelm and degrade the customer experience. Exactly. So early on, we didn't want to just let too many people in because we wanted everyone to have a great experience. And so um, we knew, but we also knew that more people were coming in their door than we uh, we anticipated. And so we, we both scaled up the team to be able to handle that. And we brought back um, the weight. And now there's actually no weight to sign up. So, um, you know, we've done a good job at balancing supply and demand. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that probably most of the entrepreneurs I interact with uh, they would never throttle back the, the uh, customers coming in. So talk to me a little bit about sort of, uh, did, you, did you learn that through some challenging experience in the past? Or what, you know, where did you get that wisdom from? Well, you know, when you're a company, uh, the majority of companies that I've worked with, talked to, um, been a part of investing in, like, you know, the business model is not always the thing that happens up front, right? So if you don't have a business model, the only metric you can go on is how fast you're growing. Um, but if you have a business model where people pay you money um, and you keep those customers for a really long time, um, making sure you get all the economics of a relationship with a customer down and you build the best product and you drive up referrals and all that, sometimes that can actually be more important than your top line growth. So we've certainly had periods of time where we said, what does it look like to grow as fast as possible? Oh, yeah, we can do that. Great. Let's scale that back so that we can focus on other things because I'm trying to build a business that lasts, you know, 100 years. And if you want to do that, you have to make sure that you're building it the right way from the get go. And so you can't just be ch chasing growth and paying for growth like like, uh, like you can in some other industries, or, or maybe you can't, right? The jury's still out as to whether that's, you know, the best tactic for a company, but it is certainly a popular one. Right. Well, in, in certain market segments, uh, market share is very important and critical. In others, it's less important. Yep. So uh, you guys, that's, a, that's another great lesson here. 
Uh, yep, it's a huge market, right? Like, right. <laughs> the, the financial services industry is very, very large. It's not going to be a winner take all. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, talk a little bit about sort of the germination of the idea and sort of you know the first six months of the of the pro- of the getting into business and what that experience was like. Yeah. So for me, when I was first starting this company, I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to raise venture money and I didn't even know that I wanted to start this company. It was, I I feel like it's my duty as a founder to really put a lot of thought and and research into whether there's an opportunity here before hiring a team and raising investor money because, you know, that's their money, that's those people's lives. And so when we first got started, my co-founder and I actually created a RIA, a registered investment advisor. Um, We submitted some, you know, the documents to the right regulators to to operate and we brought on real clients, not venture backed, hadn't built software. And we wanted to make sure that we really understood those customers and what their problems were and what kind of solutions we thought would be best. And so we spent a lot of time working with real people before we even started the company. Yeah, I think, or I guess before we started the company as it is today, we needed some legal entity to do that. Right, right. But I think that's great advice. Uh, So many people, you know, write a business plan and then just based on that plan, they could try to go out and raise capital and and they really haven't experimented at all or tested the market or figured out the viability or even engaged with a customer or a potential customer. And I think that's a really wise way that you guys have done it, right? So you're, you're kind of engaged early on, you, you can fine tune and make adjustments. And I think the other element of that is when you have that in your sort of portfolio, when you go to raise capital, it's going to be a lot easier process to raise capital because you've reduced the risk for the potential investor. And that's why I did it at the beginning was I, I didn't want to reduce it, the risk for the investor. I wanted to reduce the risk for me, right? Like <laughs> starting a company takes me off the market from doing other things. And, right. you know, I've committed to it pretty heavily. And before I was going to commit to it, I wanted to make sure that it was worth my time as well. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, let's, uh, let's go back to the, uh, the young Chris uh, as a young lad. Uh, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school, et cetera? Yeah, I grew up in Northern Virginia. Um, you know, went to, I, I changed schools a lot because uh, this one program I was in for math and science, it kept moving around. And so um, I moved around. I went to one school for first through second grade or K through two, one for third grade, one for fourth through six, one from seventh and eighth, and then another school for high school. Okay. Uh, yeah. And um, went out to school, college in Colorado at Colorado State University, um, you know, Went wanted to go to the business undergrad program because I I felt like I wanted to start a company one day or, or you know something in business I you know it's hard it's sometimes hard to put yourself back in the mind of you know the person at, you in college but I I knew business was something I wanted to do um, you know I thought about going to Babson because I knew they had an entrepreneurial program entrepreneur program so I knew I wanted to start a company in some way shape or form but I don't think I had a clue what that meant or how it would happen or how it would unfold yeah yeah excellent. Uh, any uh, any uh, entrepreneurial endeavors in the family or the greater, broader family? Yeah, so a bunch. So my grandparents actually retired pretty early f- and decided that they love traveling. And so they started a travel agency to take people in the retirement community they had joined. And I think they joined it in their late 50s when everyone else was 60, 70 years old. So they said, let's plan trips for all these people and we'll go on the trips for free. So they traveled to 50, 75 countries in their lifetime, taking other people around. And 
that was certainly one. My my mom and my dad both, um, you know, started a company together, and that company did two things. My dad focused on uh, consulting, and at one point they ran like a a small long distance carrier, and my mom focused on planning uh, conferences for the telecom industry, like trade shows for the industry, um, and continues to do that. And so they've all had it. You know, my parents both worked at home and ran those companies from the house, and so. I was around kind of entrepreneurial stuff, but I was never really around the like nascency of it, the creating it. I just mm-hmm. knew it existed and people could do it. And yeah. so, uh, you know, and then I had all my like childhood entrepreneurial hacks. Like, uh, you know, I would order pizzas at school and, you know, charge enough that I could eat to two of the eight slices per pizza free, um, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. All the Tom Sawyer stuff. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, excellent. And then uh, after uh, graduating from uh, college, uh, what was your path then? Yeah, so I didn't know. I missed the memo that you're supposed to get a a job like months and months before you graduate. Um, And so I didn't find that out till about Thanksgiving, my senior year. And I said, oh, my gosh, everybody I know from high school already has a job. I hadn't even thought about it. What job is good? Um, And... Uh, people were like, oh, ma- management consulting, investment banking, those are the best jobs you can get. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. But I went straight back to school from Thanksgiving break and I went to the dean of the college of business and said, I need you to help me get a job as a management consultant or investment banker. And so he made a few introductions. I did some interviews. I ended up lining up two jobs. Um, I had a job to go work in an investment bank that started right after graduation. And then I had a job to go work in a management consulting firm that started nine months after graduation because I'd missed the window. Um, you know, my, I have an optimizing personality. So I thought I'll just accept both jobs. And if eight and a half months in, I don't like one, I'll just do the other. And I'm glad I did. Cause eight and a half months in, I didn't like that job. So I switched and did the other, um, you know, management consulting is an interesting world where you're constantly changing projects. And so that job was fun. Um, but I had gone to this event, uh, called startup weekend and it changed my whole kind of path. So this, I, I was living in New York. I drove up to Boston, and uh, it was an event where a bunch of people get together and start a company over the weekend. And yeah. the goal isn't that you're going to start a company that lasts forever. The goal is just to prove that you can get something off the ground. And um, that happened, and it changed everything. I was like, oh, my gosh, like this is what I want to do. This was the most exciting two and a half days of my life, uh, at least professionally. I was like, I have to do this. And everyone's like, well, you should live in San Francisco because that's where everyone does this. And I was like, really? I have to go there. And so that Monday, I went into my office and it said, hey, I want to transfer to our San Francisco office. Like, I need to be in San Francisco. Like, even if I'm not doing that yet, I need to be there. And so, um, and which turned out worked well because my my wife now, girlfriend then, uh, you know, it was kind of like New York. She felt like New York wasn't the long-term home for her. So, you know, do we want to keep building roots in a city we don't think we're going to be forever? So she was on board and we moved to San Francisco. And about a month later, I got laid off. Uh-huh. So that was my real, okay, you got to figure something out on your own because, you know, it's November 2008. There are not a lot of people hiring. Um, the holidays are right around the corner. So even if they were hiring, they're probably going to wait a couple months. And so I had to figure out, okay, what do I do? I don't know anyone here. Uh, I don't have a job. So somehow I had this idea um, to start a conference for people who'd been laid off. And so it was called Laid Off Camp. And we did one in San Francisco that led to one in L.A. that led to one in New York. And by the end, we ended up doing 20 of them around the country. 
Uh, it wasn't actually a business, so we didn't actually make money. I open sourced the whole thing. I put the letters I sent to sponsors on a wiki so that people could copy them and use them to create events in their city. So it didn't have any financial benefit to me, but it did have an immense amount of um you know, brand reputation, networking ability. So I met uh, people who I ended up doing contract work for. I met people who I'm still, someone reached out to me another, you know, over the weekend and said, hey, you may not remember me. I went to laid off camp and I'm raising a round for this company and I wanted to get your opinion on a few investors. And so it's been pretty cool to see everything that, that has happened since then. Yeah. So one, let's go back to college for a second. So uh, sure. besides missing the memo on go find a corporate gig, did you have any inklings back then of of sort of debating with yourself? Maybe I should start a company right out of college. It's funny. So I took a, a couple entrepreneurship classes and, uh, you know, I had a few friends and we, we even wrote a business plan, not for like the purpose of a business plan, but we were like, we should start this company. And, you know, we didn't end up starting the company, but it certainly seemed like something we should do. But I honestly don't think I ever... I don't, this may sound strange, but I don't think I ever processed the fact that, oh, I could start a small business in college and that would actually be my career. Mm -hmm. It was like, well, we could start this business. It's like a cool thing we'll do for a few years. And then when I graduate, I'll go do something else. So it never, for some reason, it never crossed my mind that like entrepreneurship could be my full-time professional career that early. Um, and so you know, and that never actually, actually happened. Yeah. So you did go into the corporate world. You, you did those consulting gigs. So what do you think uh, the, the, what did you learn out of, out of that, uh, what it was nine or 12 months or so where, where you were working in, in sort of corporate America, what was the value of that to you? Yeah. So I, I did learn a few things. So I spent about, let's say a little less than two years working in, uh, you know, kind of corporate America, uh, if you will. And, you know, I kind of learned that corporate America is not entirely well built for entrepreneurs. Um, the spirit of like, let's all work hard and achieve something amazing together. And, you know, the servant leadership nature of being a startup founder, uh, where like my job is to do the worst things and like make sure that everyone else has a fulfilling career. Like that is not the case in like Wall Street. That is not the case in management consulting. It's the reverse. It's the lowest person on the totem pole does all the bad work and each person above them can work 20% less and make 50% more and, you know, have a more fulfilling life. And so that really irked me pretty, pretty, pretty hardly. But it did teach me that there's just how all of this stuff works, right? I was working on M&A deals at an investment bank. I was working on, um, you know, restructuring companies and management consulting. So I definitely got a great you know, view into all that and how to work on teams and the nature of those two businesses that your teams change a lot. So I got to work with lots of different people. Um, you know, I got to, you know, you probably come out of college a little bit, maybe cocky or arrogant thinking you're, you're great because you haven't, you know, been pushed that hard and knocked down in the way you are professionally. And so I got a little bit of that in the first few jobs I had, which I think was healthy. And, you know, ultimately shaped a lot of things and, and made it very clear that, that wasn't for me. Other people I know thrived so well in that environment. And for me, it was like, I need a little bit more freedom and latitude and I'll, I'll operate much more effectively in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. So if, uh, if, a uh, a senior college senior came up to you and said, uh, give me some advice. Should I, uh, should I start a business right now or should I go work, uh, in consulting or, you know, some other, some other, uh, endeavor, and then in two or three years, started business. What would your advice be? 
Oh, I mean, I'd ask them what business they want to start. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter if they're right out of college or they're not. The answer is all pretty similar. It's, you know, one, do you have the ability to not go bankrupt doing this, right? Like either do you have some savings or your parents going to let you live at home? Or, like that's kind of a requirement if, you, you know, you want to put take some of the risk away from your financial situation. But then two is like, do you have an idea? Because in my mind, if someone doesn't have a thing that they're wildly passionate about, they should not go start a company. Um, so if they don't have an idea and they just want to start a company to start a company, I say, go get a job. Yeah. You know, if you really want to start a company, knowing everything I know now, you know, 15 years later, um, or maybe 15 from high school, 12 from college, you know, knowing everything I know now, I'd say, go work at a fast growing startup, you know, go join as a chief of staff, go join as a, you know, entry level BD product, uh, you know, sales, whatever job you can get, because the things that I thought I knew that I now know having done that are just so incredibly impactful. So unless you have a thing that you're like, this is the thing I'm put on the earth to do. And I have an idea and I can prove out some traction. Like I'd say, don't go start a company, go learn as much as you can so that when you have the thing you're passionate about, it'll be more likely to be successful. Yeah, that's great advice. I I, I think I, I agree with you that I think that's an excellent path. If you're interested in, in starting a company or, uh, being an early employee in a company, then go work in an entrepreneurial business. Uh, yep. Spend some time there. You'll get a feel for what it's like, and you'll figure out whether this is for me or not. And and that's a real important thing to figure out. And um, once you understand that, you, then you then you'll know what direction to go in. So that's great advice. So when you were first starting Grove, so talk about sort of that experience, right? You you talked about it a little bit. You and your co-founder. You sort of did the registration, you started, and then how did that evolve? Yeah, so my co-founder and I met in middle school. We were on the math team together. Um, And so I'd known him for a while. He was actually the friend that let me know that you're supposed to get a job after college like months before. Um, So, you know, we'd been, you know, friends, staying in touch. He was living in New York. I was living in San Francisco. And, you know, we just started talking one day about this friend of mine who had a bunch of questions. And I thought because he had spent so much time in the investment side of the world that he would have better feedback or ideas. And as we dug in, we were like, man, so many of our friends have these questions. Why aren't they getting help? And it kind of just snowballed from there. It was like, well, why aren't they getting help? Well, let's look at all the options they have. Wow, all the options they have are terrible. How? Why are they terrible? Oh, let's go try to be one. Let's see why it's terrible from the inside. Oh, let's license all the software and see how bad it is. Oh, my gosh, it's so bad. Um, and so, you know, it just kind of kept going and going and going. Obviously, I'm like wildly passionate about this industry and this problem set and solving it personally and optimizing everything. So that that made all the struggles worth it. And my co-founder is kind of similar. So that helped. Um, and, but ultimately it was just like a, a slow iteration. There wasn't a, a wild aha moment. There wasn't uh, you know, this, this magical time where it just popped out of nowhere. It kind of was a, a, a slow iteration from the beginning. So what's, uh, what's been the most uh, challenging thing in starting Grove? Oh my gosh. I don't even know where to begin. This is the hardest job I've ever had. Um, I'd say, when you're running a company, everything's, you know, like you're ultimately responsible for everything. You've hired people, you've, you know, you're a part of their career, you're a part of their family. Um, and so I think the hardest part is 
the longer you do it, the more weight there is on the success of the company, the number of investors, the dollars they've invested, the number of people, the experience they have, their commitment to your company, your commitment to their um, their lives, their family, their well-being. Um, yet the thing that makes companies successful um, at the early stage is their ability to move quickly and execute. And so as those things pile up, you have to get comfortable in a way that you weren't five, six months ago, you weren't 12 months ago, continuing to move fast and make decisions on instinct and data and, um, you know, that, that feel harder and harder to make because more and more ride on them. But you have to, you know, be disciplined about doing that. And that's been really hard um, because when it's just me, when it was just me and Chris and we didn't pay ourselves any salary and we didn't raise any money, it was like, should we try this thing? It might not work, but it could wildly impact the business. But, you know, it'll take three months of our time. And so it'll set us back if it doesn't work. And so you you're it's so much easier to try these things that are going to have a 10, 100,000 X improvement to the company, um, but that have some risk. Whereas now you're like, well, we've got this thing moving. We have these people working on it, but you have to continue to push yourself in that way or you'll never, um, you know, you'll never be successful. And so uh, I look back, uh, my wife was fortunate to, you know, she had the experience you described. She worked at an early stage company, joined as one of the first five, 10 employees and saw it all the way through. And now it's like, I don't want to start a company. I thought I did. I don't. Um, but she was, uh, she joined this company called Zimride, which ended up becoming Lyft. And there was a point in time on a weekend where they were like, let's try this side project. And so they built Lyft in the weekend and they they had another company. It was a successful company. They ended up selling that company and doubling everything they'd done down on this thing they tried on a hackathon on a weekend. And the discipline to do that with 30 employees is is unbelievable. Like the idea that you could basically sell off everything that a month, two months, three months ago, you thought was your company so that you could focus on this thing that just barely existed, but seemed like a better opportunity. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm jealous of their ability to do that. I don't know if I'd like to think that I could, but I, you know, I don't even know yet. Right. That's a hell of a pivot. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not a pivot out of necessity. Most pivots are out of necessity. What I'm currently doing is going like crap. <laughs> I got to find something better. This was sort of the opposite. Yeah, yeah no, it was not out of necessity, which was amazing. I mean, necessity in that they might have looked at the business and said, wow, we want to build a business that's going to scale 10 times faster, and this isn't that, so let's see what that could be. But that the business was growing, right? It had revenue. They sold it for you know sure. a real price. So uh, yeah, so I don't know. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So how, uh, how has your job as a founder CEO evolved uh, over the last several uh, years? Well, at the beginning, I was like, I was just a product person, right? We we're trying to come up with a, well, I was everything, right? You know, my two of us running a company were the product people, the HR people, everything. Um, as it evolves, you hire people, you, you know, find out what they're great at and you hand them those pieces of the business to the point that I'm less involved in all these things day to day. I need to focus my time and energy on the things that I'm either uniquely capable of doing that we've yet to hire someone to do. Um, or the coordination and management of the people doing them. Um, whereas early on, you're so much more hands-on in your business. And now I'm trying to you know, say, look, I have to be less hands-on on the day-to-day -day and empower the people that we've hired to take on those things um, because that'll be more fulfilling in their career. And I just it doesn't scale for me to do it all. So you know, it's a little bit out of necessity and a little bit out of um, you know, what's best for the company. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you learn that, that skill? 
that you just described of sort of ch- re- recreating what you do and what you are. Because it's like you said, it's very different from day one to, to now. I mean, I think if I had the answer to that question, I'd go be a CEO coach or something. Um, it, you know, I, I can talk about it, but there, if there were a playbook to learn that skill, I would have, you know, I would have ideally read it and, yeah. and, you know, not had to learn through trial and error. I think at the end of the day, you have to put everything through the lens of what does the company need me to do and, you know, what allows us to be successful and moving quickly allows you to be successful. So you might you, I might be able to create the best product or the best marketing thing or, you know, in those cases, maybe that's actually not true, but let's assume for a second, one of them is true. Um, and, and I'm going to hire someone who, you know, obviously doesn't have the the depth of knowledge that I do because they just are about to start. But if I had spent all my time in that one area, I'd probably fail in five other areas. And like, that's not what the company needs. And so if I put everything through the lens of what's best for the company, um, you know, it forces me to work on things that add the most value, which doesn't mean that the product will be the best possible product. You know, you could always spend more time on it. You could always put more people involved on it. Um, but that's actually not the best use of time for anyone. And so trying to put everything through that lens and, you know, I think a big help was just having a co-founder, right? My co-founder was here and that helped me um, have a gut check for each of us, right? We were able right. to say, are, are you spending your time in a way that's most valuable? And we've done inventories of each other's times where we look at each other's calendars and say, why are you spending your time on this? Is that the best use of your time? Is there someone else that could do it? And that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, do you like belong to a CEO group or, uh, you know, get some coaching or any of that kind of stuff? Yeah. So I've done some, you know, informal and, and starting to formalize coaching. Um, I've been thankful that, you know, at least one or two of our investors pretty regularly host uh, CEO dinners for founders. And, and there's a pretty good amount of overlap of the people that attend them so that, um, you know, you start to build better relationships. And I probably have five or six founders that I can call on if I'm, you know, struggling with something. Um you know, that I have really tight relationships with and, and, you know, know me and the company well enough to be able to give some tactical advice. So I'd say I've put together most of those, but in the recent, you know, few weeks, months, I've been thinking about, uh, you know, solidifying a kind of coaching relationship, which I think is super valuable if you find the right person. It's just, you know, it's a little bit of trial and error sometimes. Yeah. It's a bit of matchmaking uh, that needs yep. to happen there because it's really relationship based. Well, it's interesting because in one of our previous uh, podcasts I did, uh, I interviewed actually uh, a CEO coach, uh, and uh, one of the things we were talking about is, uh, you know, in in early part of my career, I worked for GE and IBM, you know, big Fortune 10 companies, and as as you got promotions within there, they fundamentally had schools you went to to learn sort of how your job is changing. So sort of this coaching was built into their to their ecosystem. And how in these days, and particularly in small companies, that's not. So it's a real challenge for CEOs to kind of and founders to to grow as the company grows. Uh, not just CEOs, but everybody in that business, right? Because probably everybody's jobs changing pretty darn rapidly. Yeah, I tell everyone here, if you want to learn, this is the fastest place to learn. But if you want to be taught in a classroom or coached with someone else, like we don't have that. Like the way right. you learn here is the average financial advisor or financial planner 
you know, might wait five, six, seven years before they get to start working with clients. Um, you know, we start that a little earlier. We we put people in that situation. Now we don't put them alone, and we pair them with people on the team. Sure. Um, but we're willing to to take risks on people and and put them in places like that um, earlier because we think that's how people learn the fastest. Yeah. And so we want to put them with, you know, the ability to succeed. But the, you know, you'll get to do more here than you would in most other jobs, and that's true of many startups. So right. I say go join a startup if you want to learn quickly, but don't go if you feel like the type of learning you need is you know classroom or one on one you know mentorship, right. and you'll get that, but you won't get that as much as you would if you joined Google. But you know, you'll take five years to progress in the way you might have, you know, at a startup in, in two years. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great thought. Uh, as you, um, as you think about the past, is there a decision that you reflect on now that you say, holy gosh, am I glad we made that decision? Cause it's turned out really, really great. Yeah. I mean, coming to San Francisco was, was clear. Like none of this would have happened if, uh, no, if we hadn't done that. So, you know, putting ourselves in the heart of where the thing we wanted to do was, whether, you know, it doesn't have to be San Francisco for everyone, but um, wherever the thing that's happening is, the better the opportunity that the people you're networking with have a lot of, you know, influence and, and opportunity. So that would be one. Um, so what do, what do you mean by the thing? Is it starting a company or is it being in financial services? So I, I guess I guess let me let me rephrase that. If you you know, for me, one of the most important things was I'm going to I want to start a company, you know, an internet company, and so that happens here. So I've got to be here because sure, there are, you could build an internet company in any city in the world, but if you want to be connected with the right people who've done it before, who've done it successfully, who funded the companies and mentored the companies, like there's just a higher concentration of them here than anywhere else in the world. So why not put yourself here? Um, so that's one, um, always kind of just being open for conversation opportunity is, is another, right. When you get knocked down, just, uh, you know, try to go figure something else out. And if something's not working, don't be afraid to try something else. And so, you know, I, I, I think that I had to experience that three or four times before, um, anything really took off at the beginning. And, and that was, that was great. And, yeah, I mean, I, I I've been trying to help people, like you know, treat every in, interaction with someone as an opportunity to add value to their to their lives and their businesses, because who knows how that'll pay back, and um, especially in a in, in a hub of a ecosystem like Silicon Valley, that it it plays off in very surprising ways you would have never imagined. Yeah, and uh, what role have uh, sort of your network played in in where you've gotten to today? I mean let's see the a wild role right so uh, a guy i met rock climbing in san francisco ended up being my co-founder one of my closest friends and now one of our investors um you know people that i've worked with professionally in one role ended up investing in the company later um you know friends that i made in one job ended up introducing me to the person who was the first engineer we hired um you know, like it, it, I don't even know how half the things that happened in this company would have happened. <laughs> Excuse me. I don't know how half the things that happened at this company would have happened if it weren't for the network I, I have and then networking I've done over the last 10 years. So is that, is that something, is that a conscious effort that you've made in building this network or is it is it something that certainly y y it, it sort of has evolved? 
No, very conscious, right? I go to a conference and I always email the organizers, ask for a list of everyone there, um, you know, download the people, filter through it. Who are the 10 people that I want to meet? Open up an app on my phone, throw a photo of all 10 of them in there so that when I'm walking around, I know exactly what I'm looking for. Uh, you know, maybe email them in advance, set up a meeting and try to make sure that, you know, I, I have the most productive, you know, 10 conversations that day. And so it has to be somewhat deliberable, deliberate. But it it also has to be somewhat serendipitous, right? You run into someone, the worst thing you can do is say, oh, this person isn't on my list of 10. Let's, you know, write them off because in, for all you know, that person is best friends with someone on the list or that person might have some insights about your business that you never thought about. So, you know, I'd say I am deliberate and also open to, you know, all kinds of serendipitous, you know, opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Great, great, great advice. Hey, uh, Chris, uh, we're getting up on uh, pushing over 40 minutes here, so I want to respect your time. Uh, is there anything that I have not asked you that I should have? Is there anything additional you'd like to share with our listeners? Man, you know, there's a million things you could talk about, but I've had to stay somewhat on topic, I would just say... Um, you know, there, there's a bit of a pressure right now in the kind of entrepreneurial ecosystem to go build a venture backed company that raises capital. And I just remind people that there are plenty of businesses that that don't do that. And so, uh, you know, I view that as a way to say, wow, we have a thing that works and I want to make it grow. And, you know, having a lot of market share is really impactful to this piece of the business or um, the only way a company in this space gets off the ground is if they build this thing that's really hard to build and takes time. But, you know, I would not make that your your default operating status because there are a lot of businesses that uh, would have been good businesses, but because they tried to build huge venture scale businesses failed because they couldn't live up to those kind of venture expectations. Yeah, that's great advice. I, I often I often say very similar things, you know, with all due respect to my venture buddies, um, not every business is meant to be a venture funded business. As a matter of fact, very few of them are actually uh, meant yeah. to be venture funded. And once you Absolutely. get on the once you get on the venture set of train tracks, man, you're <laughs> you're you're in for a ride and it's a set of train tracks. You may or may not be driving the train. Yeah, no, I mean, if you're lucky, you can maintain a, a little more control than some running that business, but control isn't everything, right? There's still expectations. And, That's right. um, you know, if I had told employees, e even if I, you know, even if someone holds all the control of their company in the world, if the expectations they've set with their employees and their investors is we're going to run this company in, you know, to build, be a billion dollar company, if if you set the wrong expectations with your employees, they're not going to you know, be excited because they joined one company and it's a right. different company. So you really got to dig down and make sure that you know, you're not setting people up for what's wrong. So I'd say move quick and don't feel like you have to play by anyone else's rules. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. Good advice. So with that, uh, I think we'll wrap it up, Chris. Uh, thank you very much for uh, being on the podcast. And uh, I thought there's a lot of great gems in here. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Bela, that was a great interview. I really enjoyed literally every minute of it and took a ton away from this. Um, first, it was just a great overview of the process of being a founder. Uh, he really kind of very clearly defined the, the challenges, the thrills, the hard work, uh, the risk, and uh, what you can do in, to kind of apply what I would call modern entrepreneurial theory, right, to really tackle um, a very clear opportunity in the market that he found uh, and build a business that makes it work. 
Um, he followed an interesting path. He's definitely somebody that was steeped in entrepreneurship at home. Um, and he definitely didn't follow a direct path into becoming a founder. I thought it was interesting the way he took full advantage of sort of the entrepreneurial exposure he got as a growing up from his family. And uh, he also, you know, decided to go work at two consulting firms. And one of the interesting things about consulting businesses is you get to see a lot of other businesses in action, not only other businesses in action, but other leaders uh, and leadership folks uh, and management folks from other organizations. So it's a great way to get a great uh, amount of exposure to various different styles, company cultures, etc. And then I think Chris really took advantage of that when he found uh, his company. Yeah, and it was neat, Bella, because you know he grew up in an entrepreneurial culture, and then after college, right, and he had he worked for a little while, and then he went like a bee to a flower, right, out to San Francisco, which at the time or still is the epicenter of startup culture. Um, so he really went and and kind of steeped himself in the startup culture, taking advantage of startup weekends. And uh, I'm sure he did things like Founders Academy and just kind of got into the groove of working with other creative people who were risk takers uh, in an environment that had access to technology and capital and energy and creativity. Um, and again, the, I will then the first to admit that uh, the startup culture in Silicon Valley is not perfect. There's a lot of issues relating to gender equality and access to capital and things like that. But the kind of things that Chris was talking about in terms of the energy and the, and the excitement, it's still there and it's, it's still something that's unique. The good news is, is lots of little semi-cultures like that have popped up all over the world. Um, there's one in Berlin. We've even got a, 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 a growing one here in Münster, uh, Austin, Texas, Boston, uh, Albany, where you're at. I mean, there's lots of these little small mini cultures that you can find yourself close to or in the middle of and not even know it. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, I think I think one of the takeaways here is, you know, let me draw an analogy. Uh, if if you want to be a country music star, uh, or you're interested in the country music business, you go to Nashville because that is the epicenter of country music. And I think it's similar uh, if you want to be an entrepreneur. You got to figure out where you can go, and it doesn't have to be Silicon Valley. It can be like you said. Uh, there's a lot of places around the world. Uh, that have concentrations, but you got to go do the total immersion experience, which is, I think what Chris did. He immersed himself in that culture, uh, in that community. And I think he made lots of connections and he, he learned a lot. And I think that's one of the key takeaways is if you're interested in getting into that industry, so to speak, then go find a place where you can immerse yourself into it a hundred percent. And we've had guests that have talked about that. If you go back to the Charlotte Hayden podcast in Austin, Texas, or Drew Shepard in Columbus, Ohio, right? There's these places where you go, and both of those guests, and we've had others too, that talk about the incredible generosity of people who are involved, like yourself, Bela, right? Who will help other people, not for money, not for a piece of the action, because people helped you when you started your business, and you pay it forward. And I think the world is full of those people. You just have to access them. Yeah. Yeah. I also think another good takeaway, Mike, was the business that he got into, right? He saw an opportunity. He saw that uh, the current financial services industry um, was not necessarily putting the customer first. And so he figured out a way of how can we really get his company to focus on the customer? And he structured his whole business around that. 
Uh, and it, and, and so that, I think that was really a key takeaway. Now, Mike, what were your thoughts on sort of the minimum viable product approach that he took? I thought this was cool. I thought that he built a little mini version of the business without, without the software and without all the bells and whistles, but just to see if by changing the process, he could get customers excited about what he was doing and, and validate his ideas. So he literally built this kind of mini version of his, his, his goal. And you can do that in services. The entrepreneurs that I talk to, sometimes they don't realize that you can build a little mini service business um, without too much infrastructure and too much investment and really test your ideas out. So I thought that was textbook right out of lean startup methodologies in terms of building a workable prototype on the services side, right? And, and really getting great feedback. And, you know, like he said, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to risk my time, but I also don't want to risk my investors time, right? And money as well, right? And, or, or employees and drag them into something that's not, that's not going to work. So this idea of creating an MVP and doing validation like he did was critical, not only for his own peace of mind, but that he could look his early employees and his, his investors in the eye and say that, look, I'm really confident this is going to work. Not because he's, uh, that's his personality, but because he's now got data to back it up. Exactly. And I think that's also the opportunity where uh, the entrepreneur gets to sort of refine the recipe for his business. You get to tweak things here and there, and you're doing it with a small set of customers so you can manage that and control it. And once he sort of gets the, the recipe tweaked, he said, okay, now we can grow. But then he identified, hey, you know what? I, ha- I have a challenge in scaling this business because what, is, what was his growth limiting factor? For him, it was the financial advisors. So he has to, he has to then figure out, okay, how am I going to scale the business? How am I going to be able to recruit, bring in, and train financial advisors uh, that, that fit within the culture uh, and goals of our business? And he identified that limiting factor. And then that's when he talked about having a waiting list and sort of going slow. And I thought that whole thing was interesting, right? He, he took this really methodical approach to growing this business, not growing it too fast uh, so that it goes out of control, but at the same time growing it fast enough uh, that he was generating income to fuel and grow that business and get investors interested in investing in the business. Yeah, we call this a double-sided business model, right? Because there's two different uh, parties that are needed to make this thing work. You need the customers and you need the advisors, right? The software is just the, that he invented that's just the glue that connects them. Um, but it's this idea of balancing those two sides to make sure it's like eBay, right? If eBay has everybody who wants to sell, but nobody wants to buy, the whole thing falls apart. And if everybody wants to buy and nobody's got anything to sell, people will go somewhere else. So I think the story that Chris told about figuring out that balance between supply and demand is really a great lesson for anybody who's thinking about, um, what's called a double-sided business model. Yeah. Oftentimes we don't realize that we, we, we do have this double-sided business. We have two sets of customers, mm-hmm. and most people don't. There's a lot of entrepreneurs who don't realize that. They just focus on one group, uh, and I think your examples of eBay are, are spot on there, Mike. Yeah. So and, any other points? Go, go ahead. Oh, I, well, I was just going to say, because as financial advisors are customers, and he didn't talk about that explicitly, but you know, if I can't attract top-quality um, talent, talent right, to do right. this, right, the whole model falls apart. The scalability is based on the effectiveness of these of these advisors and if you if they're bad the whole thing falls apart i don't care how cool your app is or how cool your software is right but if the people that are making the direct contact um fail you right the whole thing falls apart 
And, you know, the last point that I'll make, Bela, that I thought was really cool, it's this idea of he really had a very clear idea of what software and what machines essentially could do and what people could do. And he wanted to use the software to do what could be automated, and he wanted people to do what software and AI and all these things still aren't good at. And when people freak out, we've talked about this a couple times, when people freak out about robots are taking our jobs, yeah, robots are going to change the jobs that we do, but I think that as even as technology evolves, people evolve, and we evolve our skills and our knowledge to do things really well that machines will never be able to do. And the goal in life, if you're early career, mid-career, late career, is figuring out where you add value and how you can do something that a machine can't and go out there and do it. And then don't be afraid of technology because use technology to enhance what it is that you're good at so you can really do the best that you possibly can for your customers. Yeah, that's great insight, Mike. That was <clears throat> that was really good. I, 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 amen to what you just said there. I think that was great. All right. Well, so shall we, we wrap yeah, this one up before we say anything stupid? Right. You know, <laughs> yeah, let's stop while we're stop ahead. Stop while you're ahead. Like, thank you very much, and we're out. But uh, we can do the little bit of uh, our normal uh, goodbyes rather than just uh, ghost and, and and get out of here. But uh, listeners, thank you. We're happy that you joined us in our podcasting adventure for this week. And we hope that you found the last hour or so with Chris Hutchins really interesting. I know I did, thought-provoking, exciting. Um, But as usual, we have two small requests. First, if you have any questions about what we discussed today, suggestions about topics we should cover, potential guests we should interview, please get in touch with us. We love hearing from you. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And second, if you do like what we're doing, hit subscribe or like on your podcast app. And even consider what writing us a quick review would be awesome uh, and much appreciated. And then finally, if you know others that might find this interesting, please share our podcast with them. Hey, so that's it for this week. Uh, I'd like to thank our listeners for spending time with us. And we look forward to having you join us for our next episode. Signing off from upstate New York. Hey, see you next week, Mike. Sounds great, Bela. And that's it for this week from over here in Münster, Germany, in a place where they have, I believe, 26 different types of cabbage. And they all have special names, Bella. It's true. We love cabbage here in uh, Northwest uh, Germany. I, I, th- I thought you were going to say 26 different types of beer, Mike. We have more than that, thankfully. But maybe we'll do a, maybe we'll do a mini on uh, cabbage at some point. But seriously, that's it. Have a great week, Bella. Talk to you soon. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co. 